In this week's episode of the podcast, I'm actually gonna take you behind the scenes to a private webinar that I ran for our mentoring clients. We help them all year with you know, all the elements of business, but this particular webinar you're gonna get value from because I basically outlined five business models to scale a business, to get away from organic growth and start to chase quantum growth. All right, let's go behind the scenes of this webinar. I think you're gonna love it. Number one. So I mentioned before organic growth, right? Which is just like doing a slightly better job than you're doing now, right? So it's like organic growth is like, you know, I'm spending two grand a month on Google ads, it's working. Let's spend two and a half grand a month on Google ads and get a few more customers. That's organic growth, right? Which is fine. But the first one I wanna run through here is organic growth at speed. So basically, it's doing organic growth, like we just said, but doing it at a really quick rate. You know, the way to do that is you have to front load a whole bunch of expenses. And the way that you would do that if you don't have capital is you would go and borrow. So whatever that looks like to you, whatever your risk profile is, whatever you're comfortable with, but you probably would have to go and borrow for that exercise, okay? Now that could be, that could be borrow from you personally, right? You've got savings um, in, you know, that you've got, or you've got a mortgage, or you've got a drawdown or an offset, whatever. So, or, or you literally take a presentation to the bank or whatever and go and borrow, whatever. However you wanna borrow, borrow from yourself, borrow from your family, borrow from a bank, whatever. And you basically take that money and you fund really two things, and that's customer acquisition and then team to be able to handle it, right? But it probably starts with customer acquisition and then it becomes team. So you're basically front loading all of your expenses, taking your margins, taking your net profit down to zero, going below zero because you're borrowing, right? And then of course, you know, your hope in that strategy is that all of front loading the expenses means that you grow a whole bunch more customers and a whole bunch more team, which means you grow your revenue. And then at some point your profit crosses over the repayments of the borrowing that you first took to grow it. And then, you know, the, the difference is, is your return on effort, your return on capital, right? So, you know, let's just do a hypothetical, right? So let's say a business is doing a million dollars a year um, and, and for that million, they're making a 40% net profit, service-based business, whatever, right? 400,000 a year. It's like, cool. Well, with that scenario, you could self-fund an awful lot of growth, right? Because you could basically use all of the $400,000 that isn't your earnings and the tax. So let's say out of that 400 grand, you live on 100, right? So then you've got, you know, a tax liability of, let's say 100. 100 is tax liability, 100 is your drawings, you've got 200 left. You could basically fund a whole bunch of organic growth out of that 200,000, take your net profit to zero for a year, put the 200,000 back in and grow, and you would have a much better business. And then, you know, maybe you go to two, three million, and then it's still at 40%, you know, it, it starts to look really interesting. It's a good business, profitable, consistent. But some people want to grow faster than that, right? So they need more than the 200 grand at the front, just using this scenario. You've got to make it smaller or larger, depending on your worldview, right? Like, cool, well, I actually need 400 grand to do this. So I'm going to use the 200 grand of profit in the business. I'm going to go and borrow 200 grand, and I'm going to do it twice as big, which means that in two to three years, it's twice as big, which means I've got twice as much profit. So, you know, instead of pulling out, say, 1.2 million uh, in three years' time of profit instead of 400, 
you know, you've got 1.8 million and the difference is 400,000, but you give the 200 grand back that you borrowed, now you've got 200 grand more and, you, you know, and so forth, it, it, it explodes, right? So that's, that's, that's a way that you can do this, but you've got to go borrow to do it. Now, it's literally just taking money and spending it on nothing except customer acquisition and team. And then for some of you, there'll be some bottlenecks around maybe physical space, the factory's not big enough, there's not enough vehicles, the machinery doesn't work to, to the volume. There'll be some capacity issues, but I have found that if you just strictly fund marketing and team, then the increased cash flow can fund all of those other little expenses, right? Unless you're in a massively capital expensive business, in which case you might need to use some of your original capital for capacity, but for the most part it's team. Now, I find the trap here is that most people will go, Right, I'm gonna I'm I'm gonna do organic at speed. I'm gonna borrow money from wh wherever, and then they feel the pressure, and do the wrong thing with that capital. They'll pay off their credit cards. They'll give it to the ATO, right? You know, the, like it's like none of that matters, right? Your credit cards are insured, and the ATO is not a creditor. So if you really want to get out of trouble, don't use the money for sins of the past because. You know, you give a whole bunch of cash to the ATO, they go, thanks, they don't care. If you still owe them money, they'll be on your tail tomorrow, right? So you're better off to take that capital and, and just don't get caught in like, oh, but I've, you know, I borrowed money from my mum and now I've borrowed money from the bank. I really should square my mum away before it's like, so I borrowed, now half my capital's gone and my mum's happy, but I've got no business and not enough money to scale. So borrow it and just legitimately use it for customer acquisition and team. Then when you scale up the business, now you can pay everybody back with wonderful interest because you fixed the actual problem of scaling up a much bigger business rather than just trying to rob Peter to pay Paul, all right? So you've got to be super diligent. Most people, when they get that money in their hot hands, all of a sudden make really dumb decisions with the money. Super diligent just to spend it on scaling. So that's number one, right? Go borrow, stick it in a business and go. Scaling model number two, franchise versus license. They're two different things. And one is better than the other, depending on which way you want to go. Australia was the darling of the franchise world, like through the, through the 90s and the early 2000s. Australia had more franchises per capita than any other country in the world. And for some reason, we loved that model. And of course, when something like that happens, it attracts all the rogues, right, who are selling overpriced franchises to people that really shouldn't have bought them, but they're just looking to expand. So. You know, I think, I think the big consideration, the, the high level consideration with franchising and licensing is you get paid up front to scale, right? That's the number one reason to do it. People pay you to expand out the brand and expand out the business. So, you know, the, the most successful franchise by numbers would be Jim's, Jim's group. I spoke at a Jim's conference at least 11 or 12 years ago. And at that point, they had sold 3,850 franchises. So now it would be, oh, I don't know, 5,000. I don't know what the number is, but the guy's done a pretty good job of selling a dream. That's a pretty successful franchise. Oh, hey, I hope you're enjoying this week's episode. Listen, I'm just here training a group here in this room, but I need you to subscribe to my channel. Guys, do you think they should subscribe to the channel? Yeah! Guys, please subscribe. So, you know, when you think about franchising and the overarching reason to do it or licensing is people pay you upfront, essentially grow your business and grow your brand. So that's a high level reason to do it. Now, there are, there are other reasons between the two, right? So if you think about franchising, the difference between franchising and licensing is simply this. 
I read the franchising code of conduct one Christmas. Unnecessarily long, but it comes down to one sentence, and it basically says this. If you show somebody the how-to of the business, if you're actually training them on the system and the how-to, it's a franchise. If you're not, then it can be a license. Licensing is essentially what you're doing is you're giving somebody rights to use your trademarks, your marks, and then the way you get paid with a license is typically like a royalty or buying power purchasing kind of revenue stream, okay? So if we were to use a coffee shop, for example, right? Let's call it Wes's Coffee. And so if I was to sell franchises, somebody pays me 60 grand up front, it ends up costing them half a million dollars to, to do that and, and fit out a shop and, and all that sort of stuff. And then I roll in with the coffee brand, you know, you, you purchase through me, we come and do some training, you come away to conferences, typical franchise, right? And then I take however you want to set it up, a fixed fee every month or a percentage of revenue, blah, 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 blah. That's a typical franchise. With a license, if I had a coffee brand, I would say, okay, Wes's Coffee is a recognized brand, so you can pay money to have Wes's Coffee if that's, you know, if you see value in it. But then, you know, when you buy your coffee, you can only use Wes's Coffee in your coffee shop. And, and so, you know, you go to a website and you order 10 kilos of Wes's Coffee, you pay, I don't know what the numbers are, you pay 100 bucks a kilo, but I can roast it for 50 bucks a kilo. So I'm basically selling you coffee and so I'm making a margin on the product that I sell you. So you've basically got two, two business relationships with me. One, you, you commit to buying from me and I make margin there. And two is you pay a fixed amount of money to use my logo and my marks. That's a license. But I don't teach you how to make coffee, da, 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 da. none of the systems and processes of the how-to of the business. That's, that's the distinction. Now the penalties in Australia are massive if you operate as a license because the compliance is a whole lot smaller, but you should have been a franchise. Uh, and I'll give you an example. There was a law firm in Australia who did this. They wanted to skirt the compliance rules of being a franchise. They wanted the easy rules of being a license, but they were a franchise and they got caught. They were a law firm and they got caught. And, and, and ASIC took them to task and, and their punitive damages were a big fine. It's like, cool, that's easy paid for. And then they had to go back to every current franchisee and say, We've been caught out for doing the wrong thing and you can leave the franchise without penalty, right? So a whole bunch of disgruntled franchisees just bailed and they couldn't charge them with termination fees. Then they had to have a document that sat on the top of their due diligence documents forever that said ASIC found us to be in breach of the franchising code of conduct and you should know that this was the damages and basically talking anybody out of joining this franchise, they had to have that on the top of the due diligence documents. So no one really wanted to join them. And so they were gone in 12 months. As a, they had to put it on their website that they were caught and stuff like that. So the damages in Australia from ASIC, if you try and do one and you should have been the other, is, is, it will probably just bring you to your knees. So you do want to make sure you get it right. The upside is, of course, they scale your brand for you and you get paid up front. The second thing is, the, the second biggest reason to do it is because they're a business owner themselves, they have a vested interest to make the business work, you know, versus an employee who just calls in sick on Monday if they want to or quits and gets another job. These guys are more likely to stick around. The problem is, so that's the upside. The downside to franchising is you no longer are in the business of whatever the business is. And that's the bit that most people can't handle. 
They love the business they're in, so they go and franchise it without realizing that your business is no longer the products and service of the business. Your business is selling people a dream and litigating against them when they muck around. So franchising and licensing is only good for somebody who's prepared to be a bit of a bully and really trigger happy on litigation. Right? Now a lot of people they don't have that fortitude to ha you know, like if you can't stand conflict, you should not do either of these because this is a game of conflict. It really is. And if you've been involved in any franchising, you know there's a lot of friction between the franchisee and the franchisor. They hate me, they don't support me. They're just a bunch of kids and I can't handle them, right? So it's it, it, like, there's not a great one in the world. I mean, you take Gloria Jeans. Gloria Jeans, you know, Christian mob, they have the lowest satisfaction rate of a franchisee out of any franchise in Australia, right? Under their Christian ownership, you know, and so, you know, and if you speak to the owners, they would be like, we did everything for those mongrels, you know. So it's like, you can't, you're so far apart, you know, and, uh, and so it's tough. Uh, it's tough to do that. And, and it, it, it is actually hurting kittens. Like if you become a franchisor or a licensor, it is basically adult daycare. And you, and, and it's really hard to make money for the first few, right? You can imagine, you put on three franchisees, you think you're flying, those three are ringing you every day. How do I do this? Where, like, is it a good idea? Where's the proof of concept? Where's my next meal coming from, right? So, and then, and you're not making enough money to put a full-time team in an office to help them win. So you basically go backwards for the first, whatever, four, five, six franchises, licenses, right? And then at some point you hit a critical mass and you've got say 10, 10 are paying your money, you can take that money and you can put an office team in to support them and help them win and do some training and stuff like that. And then you go to 20 and you make some dough. But you've got to you've got to hit that critical mass, and you've got to be able to get through to that point. You know, it's also incredibly expensive to start. You know, franchising always seems rosy, right? And you might have one or two people that want to come to you and say, "Oh, let me take your business to a different state." But beyond those two, for you to sell franchises is tough. And the trend is that the big upfronts, the big upfront payments, are a bit of a thing of the past. Whereas you used to pay 50 grand just in franchise fees to, to take on a franchise, most franchises are much smaller upfronts and most of them are vendor financed over two years. So you still might get your money, but for the ones that don't do the business in six months because they quit, you don't ever get your money from them. So it's, it, you know, it's, it, it's a tough gig. You've really got to be prepared to live in a suitcase as well because you've got to go to all the franchising expos and road shows and, and they're very expensive. Yeah, I was part of a franchise in 2004. It cost us 15,000 in 2004 to have one stand at one Brisbane event for three days. You know, it's like that was back then. It'd be 25,000 now just to have a stand at these franchise shows. So it's a, you know, and, and then everyone kicks the tires of the franchise. Then you've got to stick around in a hotel for two more days to meet with the interested parties. And that, you know, it's, I don't want to paint a rosy picture, it's really tough, but if you can get past that critical mass and it grows by itself, phenomenal way to grow because, because they basically take your brand national and you get a little clip of everybody's effort and, uh, and, and it's a great business model once it hits some level of scale. All right, model number three, uh, if you want to scale your business, is multi-location. And this would look different for everybody. Could be an office, it could be a shop. Um, however, however you do it, right? It could be a branch, but you know, like you, you, you've got a business in Sydney and you want to go to Melbourne, 
right? It's like, well, that's a great idea because, for example, my business, we can service Australia-wide and global from one office. But there is something to be said for having a team on the ground in Melbourne. That, that would be a really good idea. It's just that I don't know that the trade-off is there, right? But there are businesses um, that, that really are, are a bit more local. And so they, you know, they can't sell to a Melbourne audience based out of Brisbane. And so they open multi-location. And if you, can, if you can open two of those and get it to work, you can really do 22. And if you can do 22, you can do 202, right? It just becomes systems, processes, team, repeatable strategies and so forth. So um, the downside to multi-location is you're employing a team to run a business at arm's length, right? So, you know, you, you can imagine that the, you've got two team members in your Melbourne office who are starting up this new location, they go out on a bender on Sunday night, there's no one there Monday. It's like, cool. Well, you're not gonna get up on Monday and get a text message and then jump on a plane and go to Melbourne, right? So it's, it's got that level of friction about it. So you really have to have some pretty big incentives for those people to win. You have to imp recruit incredibly well, not just take anybody. Very tight controls over the reporting and the, and the, and the, and the workflow. And then it really only works if you have great culture. If you can get the second location to embody the first location and they feel like they're part of something exciting and growing, then it works. If they just feel like the poor cousin that gets forgotten about because your demands in Sydney are too big, it'll just die a slow death. The upside, of course, of multi-location is that you get to keep all the money. So with franchising, right, you know, you've got a Sydney franchise, somebody takes a Melbourne one, you only get 7% of the revenue of that business. With multi-location, you get to keep 100% of the revenue of that business and pay wages. So you get a lot more money with multi-location than you do with franchising, except the capital cost for you is upfront. With franchising, they pay you to expand. With multi-location, you have to find the office, fit it out, put the phones in, buy the computers, blah, 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 blah. You, it's capital upfront, but a much bigger payday at the end, right? So there are benefits to doing it that way. And you know, like I think about retail, right? You know, retail's much tougher now than, you know, than it has been over the last 30, 40 years. But I read about Richard Branson when he was rolling out the Virgin Record stores. And they were doing uh, like one every three days when they, you know, when they first started rolling those out. And what they would, the way they funded it essentially was they would go find a location on a high street and they would negotiate, you know, three, four, five months rent free if they stuck around for five years. And so they do a massive launch promo, right? So they make a ton of cash in the first month because everyone's excited, but they don't have to pay rent and they take that money back out and they roll it into the next shop. So they funded their expansion essentially out of a massive launch and lower costs in that early period of time and recycled that money back into the next one. And that's how they were able to grow so fast, right? So all Richard did was, you know, through those years was travel the country and be part of the opening ceremony and the media, rah, 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 and then, and then move on to the next one, rah, 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 media, move on to the next one. Now, it's really interesting if you take Richard Branson as a model, because he's like, his whole ethos, which he never said, but you read it all the way through his books, is like, start a business, doesn't really matter if it's profitable, as long as the value of the business explodes, and then sell the equity to another partner. That's his business. So he just releases equity. So he gets the record shops to be worth, you know, whatever, 10 million, goes and finds a partner to give him 200, you know, to, 
whatever, two and a half million in the early years for 25%. Now he's got two and a half million. It doesn't matter what happens to the business. And then as he grows it, he'll sell the next round of equity and the next round and, get, and then just retains a small bit at the end and rolls on. Right? He's done that with all the businesses. So that's basically how he funds his growth. Now, if you take, if you take that Richard Branson model as an extreme, he doesn't just use that model for multi-location. He uses it for multi-businesses. Grow Virgin Blue, sell nearly all of the equity, rip out a billion, roll it into the next business and do the same thing again. Like, that's a, that'll, that'll, that'll fry your noodle, right? But the upside is a lot more, um, a lot more money, a lot more profit, a lot more revenue, and the downside is a lot more controls. But if you've got a great culture, like you read about those early years of Richard and setting up those shops, the team were like running on adrenaline and coffee. It's like, open the next one, get up to Birmingham, part of this exciting movement, right? Launch that one, get down to Southampton, launch that one. And so they were part of this really energetic, vibrant world. And that's what kept everybody on the train. If it didn't have that, if it wasn't exciting, they weren't pushing the envelope, challenging the status quo, oh, you know, so what? So I think it just, they just wouldn't be part of this exciting move. So you have to have that kind of energy through that scaling journey, which is what keeps everybody excited. All right, number four. If you wanna scale quickly, number four is find an investor, right? And use their capital to grow. Now this is, much easier said than done. Um, everybody would like to do it, uh, but, it's, but it's tough. Because if you're a tech startup, there's massive amount of capital available for you. Um, if you're not tech, there's a tiny amount of capital for you. It's like it's that clear delineation. In fact, that is, that is so true that WeWork, the office space business, did everything they could to try and pass as a tech startup. Now their business was renting spaces and then renting it at a higher price than it cost them, right? Rent, you know, rent a thousand square feet and sell 10 square feet at a higher rate than that 10 square feet they're paying out. That was their business model. But they, but there's no money, there was no money like it, it, in that business to invest. You couldn't go out to the biggest hedge funds in the world because it was a real estate play, not a tech play. So they did everything they could to try and develop technology and apps and communities online and stuff like that to, because without that, they couldn't tap into the VC money. So then it becomes tough, right? If it's like if the, the pool of capital is not there, the, the, there's not an investor network to buy in a tradie business, for example. So then it comes, okay, well, how do you find one? Well, the, the mistake most people make is they wildly overvalue their business. If you've ever watched Shark Tank, Dragon's Den, Right, you know, it's like, wow, well, you know, people walk in there and they go, right, I'm selling 10% of my business for 250,000. So everyone goes, okay, so you're valuing your business at 2.5 million, far out. This is gonna be a really good business. Tell us about your sales to date. Oh, we've done 40 grand. Oh, any profit? No, we lost 40 grand. Oh, okay, so you lost 40, but you're valuing your business at 2.5 million. And then they go, yeah, well, it's going to be worth. And they're like, yeah, but you, you're asking for the money today. You're not asking for the money when it's going to be, right? It's like, so then there's that tension. And it's wonderful to watch. You can learn an awful lot there. But you do, you do also have to value the future potential of the business because most businesses today are worth zero, right? Two and a half times net profit. Well, if you haven't got any net profit, two and a half times zero is always going to be zero, right? It doesn't matter what your multiple is. So then I guess what I'm trying to say is most people are like, I want 250 grand. It's like, well, you, maybe you don't. Maybe you need 72,000. 
and that gets you through, you know, a seed round so that you can go back and do a Series A and a Series B and a Series C at a later stage. Sure, you have to keep giving away equity, but you do dilute, everybody dilutes after, after seed, right? Everybody dilutes, you're not always, it's not always your equity you're giving away with an investor. Everybody dilutes, right, over time. So, all right, well, you are still better off to own 60% of a big business than 100% of a little one, no doubt. Even just mathematically, you're better off to do that. You know, I think about the brothers that started Stripe, right? You know, I think even now that it's a wildly successful business, been around for a while, I think they're like nine years old, these kids. I, I don't know what their age is, but they're, they're still got pimples now, and it's been around a long time. But they only had 9% each. That's, that, and that made them, I think that netted them $2 billion each, having such a small stake in the business. It's like, yeah, well, see, if they wanted to retain Stripe and be all precious about the equity, it would not be a household name today because they never would have had the capital to be able to build a brand to be able to sell that last 9% at anything worthwhile. They might, the best they could have hoped for if they didn't go down the avenue of having a minority stake and selling it for a massive premium, the best they could have hoped for was taking the tech stack that they had created and selling it to some private business who just wanted the IP and they might have got 20 million each. They could have done that. That would have been the best case scenario B. But they didn't, they just rolled the dice, built a massive business and sold a very small share for a large amount of money. So, so when it comes with you, like the, the pool of investors that can give you 72,000 is 72 times the size of the pool of investors that can give you 250. You know, like people go, oh, it's just, it's just money. It's like, yeah, but at 250 grand, you're finding somebody who is smart enough to want to know, all right, what's the go here? They get, at 72 grand, you know, it could be, it could be the, you know, the, the rich dude at church. It could be your uncle, right? It could, for 72 grand, it could be your mum, your dad, your brother. 72 grand could be, you know, some, your neighbour at 72 grand. But at 250, no one's just dropping that for fun right, you know, on a whim. So, so that's why you've got to think about capital raising and, and finding an investor in stages. And you know what's really ironic about investors is if you, just staying on those same numbers, the numbers don't matter, I'm just using them as an example. If you, if you found an investor who put in 72 grand, they're most likely to be the investor that drops in the next 250 if they can see that you spent the 72 well and you mapped to your plan, right? So they're the most likely person to do your Series A. That's why if you look at, if you go back to tech for a minute, the race, you look at Square Peg Capital, Blackbird, our biggest tech venture funds in Australia, which there's a few of. If you look at them, their whole conversation is we want to be the first check, the first check into any idea. And it's basically 50 grand for 15 to 20%. That's, if you, because a lot of people have a business plan on the back of a napkin or eight, eight slides of a PowerPoint. And for that, if they like it, it's 50 grand for 20%. It's like, at that stage, you need the 50 grand and you don't need the 20%. When it's worth a billion, you've given away 200 million. So, you know, but that, the reason why they want to be the first check-in is because they also want to see what do you do with it. And if you can commercialize it, then they want to be the second check, third check, fourth check, and they want to basically fund you all the way through because then they get a bigger share of a business, right? So, so for you, right, who's not in tech, how do you go find an investor? 
There's no mathematical equation now because it's not a multiple of net profit. It's painting a picture and being trustworthy. So you basically produce a one-page memorandum of understanding where you explain the potential opportunity and what they get for their money. So it's like, you know, basically it goes, here's the addressable market. There's a billion dollars spent on this industry in a year. We should be able to capture half of 1%, right? You know, whatever, it's worth 500 million, whatever. Um, and so I'm gonna take 72 grand in exchange for 10% of my business. I'm valuing the business at 720,000. And I'm gonna spend the 72,000 like this. I'm gonna six grand on this, I'm gonna do that, I've got a bit of equipment, we're gonna get a bigger lease, that'll mean this much more revenue, that revenue funds this. And so you basically build out a projection of how that 72 grand gets spent, what that produces, what that means to the business, and how it all flows on. So you're basically showing them, if we put in this much money here, we get this much outcome down the line, right? Um, and then you probably wanna show people on that MOU what the possible exits are for them. So it's like, in five years time, I buy your share out at a commercial value. At five years time, we trade sale the whole thing and you get 10% of a much bigger business on sale. In seven years, we're gonna list on the stock exchange and get 26 years worth of profit on day one and you'll get your share. You just give them some outs, right? And one of them should be that you buy them back because you want that option. You want the option to buy them back. If, you're, if you've taken a business over five years and their share, their value has gone from 72 grand to half a million, you wanna buy back the half a million because you now know that you could take that business to being, their share could be worth 10 million or whatever. Right? So. And then of course, that doesn't help you find the people. All that does is give you the, the document to share with them. So then your job becomes telling everybody that will listen about your opportunity. There's no investor networks. I get this email every third day in my inbox. Hey, you don't know me, but where, where are the wealthy Christians that can fund my kingdom business? I get that every third day. And my answer is there isn't any, but if you produce an MOU and you share it with enough people, the Lord can create a divine appointment for you to get your money, right? You know, and, um, and then the next one is, do you, would you like to invest? Nope, I, I get asked to invest every fourth day. And, and they always count, I've got this amazing opportunity. It's like, dude, I'm trying to get out of the opportunities I'm in now. Like, I don't, I, I don't want another one. Like, I, I've, I've learned boundaries in the last handful of years. Like, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not that mad keen on your opportunity. And, and don't feel like I'm missing out. <laughs> I, I, I got enough, I'm not missing anything. So, so then you've got to tell everybody. Now that will become really monotonous, but that's life. And if you're not sure, like, just, here's what I would do if I were you. I would, anybody at church that has a half-decent vehicle, right, or whatever, you'd be like, hey, listen, or, or if they were ever in business, be like, I'm a young Christian entrepreneur, I'm a startup, I've got this business, can I, can I just shout you a coffee and run my ideas by you and you might be able to cast some light on them, right? Um, and then at least you can hook them, at least you've got to, you can hook them with vision when you're sharing your coffee with them which you can't do when you, you know, your original document or your proposal or your email, it's very hard to cast vision in it, right? So you literally want to be like, hey, listen, I, I want to value the gift. You've, you've been in and out of business. You've seen high level stuff. I want to run my ideas. Let's see if you can point me in the right direction. It's going to cost you coffee or lunch or something like that for you to be able to do that. And then they go, I like this kid. I like the idea. I, I can possibly find you the money, right? So 
there's, listen, there's no shortage of money. Like, there is so much money in this world, it is ridiculous. There is a shortage of tenacity, there's a shortage of vision casting, there's a shortage of having a good plan and being prepared, and there's a shortage of just pushing through and telling everybody, right? If you, but if you're prepared to do those things, there's an unlimited amount of money, okay? And then now there's one more model, because we're going to get to five. And this model, unfortunately, doesn't have a cool name. This one is called Wes's model. Because it doesn't have a cool name. That's it. So what Wes's model is, is a bit of a hybrid of a few different things. And it's quite entrepreneurial, which is why I like it. So think about... Think about, it's, it's almost these two put together. Um, essentially, it goes like this, right? Let's just go back to the Sydney and Melbourne example. Stay on the same theory. I've got a business in Sydney. I want to open one in Melbourne. It's like, if I go franchising, yeah, sure, I get, I get some money. I get a little clip of the ticket. If Melbourne goes incredibly well, I still get a little clip of the ticket, and that's frustrating. If I do multi-location, you know, they quit. I've got to hire in five seconds. Blah, 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 That's, you know, there's a lot of friction to that. It's like, Wes's model is essentially this, right? Let's say I owned XYZ Proprietary Limited in Sydney and it's going incredibly well. And then one of my team comes to me and says, I love working here, it's a great business, I'm really good at my job, but I'm moving to Melbourne. It's like, cool, well, see ya, right? All the fun, in, all the best in Melbourne. Well, or I could actually go, hmm, you are a potential to be your own business owner, like, and that's just one scenario. They might come and say, I'm going into business against you, right? That happens. Um, whatever, I'm starting a completely different business in Melbourne, whatever. So it's like you find somebody that will be a great jockey that's got entrepreneurship on their life and can think smart and, and has them get up and go. And you're like, well, rather than just let you leave, let's go into business together. So I've got XYZ Proprietary Limited. All right, let's draw it out, right? We call that the mothership. So we have XYZ, Proprietary Limited, and that's the business I run in Sydney right now. And it's going well, and I'm happy, and everyone's making money. But then I find William, and William is prepared to go to Melbourne. Well, of course, I could just open a Melbourne branch and put it under XYZ and just scoop all the money into that. That's, that's the multi-location. Actually, I'm a big fan of starting another company, right? So we call it ABC Proprietary Limited. And so this one, I own 100% of the shares, on this one, I do a share split. I own 90% of the shares, and they own 10% on day one. Now, if there's, you might get them to put in some capital if they've got a little bit of capital, like maybe not, maybe you just, maybe they don't, and you, you back them by putting your capital in. However, maybe you put capital in, but the business buys back the capital over time and pays you back as a loan. There's a million ways to set it up. But just conceptually, right? And then what you do is, the reason why you're giving them 10% is because they're on the Monday morning after the bender, they're more likely to want to turn up because it's their own business and they're chained to it just a little bit more, all right? And for you, you've given away 10% of a business that's worth nothing. So what is, it doesn't cost you any money at this stage to give that away and to back that entrepreneur. And then what happens is you, you set a whole bunch of predetermined KPIs, right? When revenue gets here and profit gets here, you'll go to 15% and I'll go to 85. 
and when revenue and profit gets here or whatever metrics you choose, you'll go to 20% and I'll go to 80. And when you get here, da da da, and then down here, when we get to this point, you know, I'll be at 50 and you'll be at 50 and, and now we're partners. And the only time you want to cross th that threshold is when you've been in business together long enough that you've seen their character. So that can't be within one to two years, right? Because that's just not enough time to see someone's character. You've got to see them over a much longer period of time. Now, what can happen, of course, is that you would probably ratchet that all the way down to you have 20% and they have 80. Why, why would you be precious about needing to keep a lot of it? At 80%, they are so invested in this business, right, that, you know, that they're there every day growing the value of this company. Now, you think, okay, well, all I've done is end up with 20% of a business. Yeah, but it's 20% of a much bigger one. When you gave away 10%, it was turning over a thousand bucks a year or whatever. By this stage here, it could be turning over $5 million with a $1 million profit. Well, now you've got 20% of that. Happy days. And then, of course, you go, well, that worked. I want, this next person wants to go to Perth. So it's DEF Proprietary Limited. Do the same thing. Da -da 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 -da. Do the same thing. Da -da 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 -da. Do the same thing. Da -da 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 -da. So that's, I really like the model. And I'll tell you who does a pretty good job of this is, for some reason, the recruitment industry. So, you know, recruitment, if, in Australia, it's not much of a big deal. But if you go to like London, where recruitment was kind of birthed as, a, as an industry, or England, and then the US, it's, it's pretty big. This is what they did. This is why there are some businesses in recruitment that are worth, you know, tens of billions of dollars, right? Um, just, just ultimately because they found people that would come through and then they, those people go, I'm starting on my own. And they're like, are you up for a partnership? Yep, spool them out, go under the same branding and value the group. And so, you know, you could do a scaled up version where there's a hundred of them, you could do a scaled down version where there's two of them, but it really comes down to the jockey and you deciding to back the entrepreneur.